It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Here's the show. Hello, welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Today, I will be recommending three recent movies, all available to watch on Netflix, and they are The Trial of the Chicago 7, The Life Ahead, and 22 July. Now, courtroom dramas can sometimes feel a little staid when we are generally left alone in, in one location. That's mostly the case with courtroom dramas, right? But then again, in the hands of an expert scriptwriter like Aaron Sorkin, who excels in the verbal sparring of his characters, the results can be truly electric. The trial of the Chicago 7 is one such example of a successful courtroom drama. And also, in this case, a likely upcoming Oscar nominee in several categories. The trial of the Chicago 7 really sizzles with the West Wing creator's potent, fast-paced dialogue and its large ensemble cast. Sorkin, by the way, is also the writer behind such films as The Social Network, The American President, A Few Good Men, Moneyball, and several others. But The Trial of the Chicago 7 is just his second film as director, after the gambling drama Molly's Game, and it is set in the aftermath of the chaos at the 1968 Democratic Party convention in Chicago, when seven, really eight men, went on trial, facing charges of incitement to riot, all in protest of the then-ongoing Vietnam War. Incitement to riot. Now, that may sound a little familiar these days, but with this film, we are indeed talking about events of more than 50 years ago. Now, before discussing its many merits, let me just say this. I have a few issues with the movie. <laughs> um, it's a great movie, but maybe I'm just a little too familiar with the real-life events. Um, I'm not quite old enough to remember them as they happened, but in high school a few years afterwards, I, I, I did read a lot about them and have always uh, generally been quite interested in the the history of the, the 1960s counterculture. And this movie is really central um, to that, uh, that interest of mine. So forgive me if I may sound a little overly familiar with the events that it describes. Um, this is a Hollywood movie. So um, despite the gravity of the, uh, of those events, uh, the film um, comes across, at least to me, as a little too conventional and smaltzy, uh, particularly with the conclusion. But that's just to betray how entertaining this movie uh, really is, uh, that it is in many ways um, taking a real-life event and condensing it into something that is not untruthful, but which does exercise a great deal of, shall we say, poetic license. Another thing 
and uh, which is probably all too typical of Sorkin's writing, is that he tends not to write women characters all that well. And in fact, in this movie, The Trial of the Chicago Seven, there are really few, if any, uh, of any real substance. Uh, and as is typical of Sorkin, it's uh, mostly always um, a plot involving smart white guys debating each other. Really a collection of brave individuals in this case, taking on a corrupt, or at the very least, highly flawed judicial system. Now, of course, the trial of the Chicago 7, as I've indicated, is not intended to be a documentary. It's not that in, in any sense of the word. It's not even a docudrama. This really flows like uh, fiction, and um, like fiction, it should be viewed at least uh, to some extent as such. Because, of course, we're talking here about a real-life trial that lasted six months, and this movie has only an approximately two-hour running time, so much has to be condensed into that running time, especially because there were so many crazy, outlandish things going on in this trial that not all of those all of those aspects can be incorporated into the film. I mean, no movie, no mere movie could be uh, long enough to do so. <laughs> and among all of those outlandish things, they, um, I mean, they all centered around an intense antagonism between um, the fairly portrayed, in my view, uh, and highly incompetent and uh, politically... Um, prejudicial uh, judge played in the film by Frank Langella and uh, that that antagonism between him and the defense counsel especially the lead defense counsel the uh, William Kunstler played in the movie by by um, Oscar winning actor Mark Rylance and also by with an antagonism um, demonstrated between Judge and um, the men on trial themselves, especially in the shocking, truly shocking treatment of the unrepresented Black Panther on trial, Bobby Seale, who is literally bound and gagged at one point during court proceedings. But um, as I said, there are really just too many crazy things going on during the trial to all be included in the film. Um, and although that's not a problem on the face of it, um, there is also a lot of dramatic license involving the real life characters and how they're portrayed. And, um, while there's nothing really outrageous, um, in, in terms of the uh, license taken with those characters, I think when you're making a movie involving real people and using um, those people's real names, I, I think there's a certain obligation to get it right all the way down the line. And uh, the movie does not always do that. Also, it might have been advisable to use actors not quite so well-known. Um, actors like... 
Um, Sasha Baron Cohen, for example, uh, especially as he is quite older than the person, Abby Hoffman, that he is playing in the movie. Though I do predict, I mean, and he's, he's really quite wonderful, um, really, you know, really quite charismatic, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, of course. Uh, and I, I do predict he will receive an Oscar nomination for his performance. But the figures that he and others in the movie are playing uh, were all themselves quite larger than life. And the casting of big names to play those uh, figures sometimes, and however char- charismatic those actors are all the way down the line, at least for me, um, such casting becomes a little distracting and gets in the way of seeing uh, who those figures really were. Though I don't think this will bother most people. Again, the sh- trial of the Chicago 7 is not a documentary. Interestingly, and I'm not giving away any plot spoilers here, when I say that the movie also tends to show, in retrospect, the violence that the men are being accused of having incited as being started at various points um, during the um, the convention of the Chicago of, in Chicago of the Democratic Party in 1968, it, it tends to show that violence being started by both demonstrators and police. Despite a presidential commission of the time, which is not mentioned in the film, having characterized that violence as predominantly that of what it called, and I quote here, a police riot in which uh, indiscriminate violence was used, not just on protesters, but also on bystanders, reporters, and photographers, though I hasten to add that, um, that that remains a controversial point, and many have taken issue with it. In the movie itself, um, I think many would, would say that the, the, the movie is much more even-handed in its uh, treatment of the violence um, committed by both demonstrators and Chicago police. But in, in my view, any violence that was done, and this is perhaps outside the scope of the movie itself, any violence that was done by the demonstrators in Chicago or disrespect shown in the courtroom, <laughs> which really comes across well in the movie, that all pales in comparison with the, um, the savage prosecution of the war at the time, the, the Vietnam War in the 1960s and early 70s by the U.S. government. And that's what the real people on trial were all deeply concerned about. Um, what tends to come across in the movie is that they were mostly protesting the death of American soldiers. But truly what they were protesting was not only their deaths, but the deaths of um, civilian Vietnamese as well and the movie unfortunately, kind of misses out on that. What does come across quite well is the differences in tensions between all of the men on trial, especially the marked dislike between two of them. The Abby Hoffman character, played by, as I said, Sasha Baron Cohen, and the Tom Hayden figure, played by uh, Oscar-winning Eddie Redmayne. There are a lot of Oscar winners in this movie. Hoffman is... Presented as a kind of politicized hippie Groucho Marx um, type figure. And in in truth, that's really kind of how he might best be characterized. Um, I think someone once called him a Groucho Marxist. (laughs) And I think that's that's probably fair. Um, And alongside his his pal Jerry Rubin, played in the movie by Jeremy Strong, 
Um, he was quite uh, Hoffman. He was quite adept at a form of both Hoffman and Rubin were quite adept at a form of street theater through a number of stunts, <laughs> very public, highly, um, highly public stunts and pranks as a way of both mocking in a very theatrical sense, the establishment and protesting the war. Uh, almost as if he and Rubin were enacting scenes from the classic comedy Duck Soup in doing so. And it's because of their <laughs> comic anarchism, however charismatic, that they were not regarded very seriously by others on the left. And it's that dynamic with the relatively clean cut and largely respectful and overly sober Tom Hayden, at least as he's presented in the movie, that the film richly exploits to great dramatic effect. Uh, and generally, this is, this is one thing that the film really does quite well, sh sharply delineating all of the characterizations, uh, characterizations of the principal characters involved. And there are many. This is truly an ensemble drama. When I say that uh, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen will probably get an Oscar nomination, it won't be for Best Actor. It will be for Best Supporting Actor. But there are, there, are, there are many notable performances in this film, including uh, those by Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the lead prosecutor and uh, also uh, the performance of Michael Keaton as the former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark. Now, despite the gravity of those times and the events depicted in the movie, this film is no great slog. Not by any means, even though I, as I recall, it runs over two hours. It's very compelling. And not just because I'm familiar with the events. It's certainly very entertaining and highly theatrical. You will certainly enjoy it, even if you had never heard of the trial of the Chicago 7 or even in the Vietnam War. This is a, even a very, very entertaining film. Highly immersive, uh, a really great uh, dramatization with um, um, demonstrating a lot of power, not just in the performances, but in the um, in 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 Sorkin's uh, writing, especially. It's it's um, it's 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 a very theatrical film in that sense. One very much concentrated on the characters and the words that they emote. And the film itself is also um, ultimately quite optimistic in the end. I won't spoil, uh, present any spoilers regarding that. But uh, the humanity of the characters, um, you know, getting one over on the system, almost in a kind of Frank Capra type way, is quite central to how things unfold in this movie, which despite the frequent uh, poetic license on display will certainly not bother those less familiar than myself with the real life event. That's The Trial of the Chicago 7, available to view on Netflix. Okay, let's now take a look at the movie the Life Ahead, a new 90-minute adaptation of Romain Gary's 1975 novel, La Vie de Vensois, which has already been famously adapted once before in 1977 as, and I'm sure you know it, 
Madame Rosa, starring Simone Signore. This new adaptation is set in the contemporary world of the Italian city of Baria in Italy on the coast of the Adriatic. But it tells much the same story as the earlier film, with Rosa, a quite elderly Holocaust survivor, played by Sophia Loren, who looks after children whose mothers, mostly sex workers, have either abandoned them or can't otherwise take care of them. In a society that all too often lets people slip through the cracks, Madame Rosa, as she is referred to by all with great respect, is the glue of her particular little community of outsiders and social misfits. And as she nears the end of her life, the one remaining child under her care is an 11-year-old boy from Senegal who helps her through that quite difficult process. Now, of course, this is an unlikely friendship, to say the least, but it is one that is portrayed quite tenderly and even providing for a kind of transformation in the character of the boy named Momo. Madame Rosa herself is portrayed always with great dignity and while she may be cranky and a little imperious at times, we often see her warm and funny side too. And definitely she's a very strong character, if quite obviously fragile physically. I mean, she's led a hard life and that really does show in her face and in her actions sometimes too, but she is still capable of acts of great generosity. But really what is most heart-rending about Madame Rosa is that she often goes into a difficult dementia-like state when the trauma of her past experiences gets to be too much for her. And when that happens, she seems truly broken, unreachable, and she stares into space, especially when seeking solace in her sanctuary, her secret room, where a much younger Rosa had gone to hide, and which the children, the children of her contemporary world, now referred to as her Batcave. Because, of course, they think of her in much the same way as um, people might think of a heroic figure like Batman, someone who is, much like Madame Rosa herself, a protector of those people who are otherwise quite vulnerable. Sophia Loren has often played dignified roles grounded in the harsh reality of real-life experience. I mean, there has never been anyone in the movies quite like her, and she remains such a huge star that her appearance in anything, especially this, her first movie in more than 10 years, is really an event of a kind. And so seeing this film is like catching up with someone we haven't seen for a while, and, you know, we're all just a little bit older, as is she, and there's not much effort to hide that fact 
I think, to the credit of the film. Famously, uh, Sophia Loren was very much a sex symbol of the 1950s and 1960s, but now at 86 years old, the camera isn't especially kind to her. Nevertheless, it does distill her presence into another sort of dignified, even regal beauty, which is both stern and stirring, and which I think befits the esteemable character that she's playing in this movie. Sophia Loren was, once upon a time, a major star of Italian, European, and Hollywood cinema. A triple threat, you might say. Born Sophia Villani Siccolone, in poverty, in the city of Rome, she grew up in Naples, her father having abandoned both herself and her mother. And she has spoken publicly about how much she identifies with the role of Madame Rosa, perhaps for that reason. And certainly because Rosa is herself very much a strong-willed and independent figure, much like Lorraine herself and the characters that she has portrayed, often very maternal characters throughout her career. Among her many accolades, Sophia Loren was the first to win a Best Actress Oscar for a non-English-speaking role in 1961's Two Women, a film directed by Vittorio De Sica. And I think it was the first of those many maternal roles in which she would often play quite earthy, fiery-tempered for sure, and no-nonsense women from really quite dirt-poor backgrounds, much like her own, as I understand it, but always in a dignified way. And that's certainly true with her character of Madame Rosa in this film, The Life Ahead. Um, in this characterization of her, I think she reminds me a little of the con contemporary Spanish actress Penelope Cruz, um, the younger Sophia Loren, I think also looks a little like um, Cruz. But I suppose Sophia Loren's only near equivalent in terms of star power and career longevity, though 10 years earlier, is the still prolific French actress Catherine Deneuve. And Sophia Loren occupies a similar position to Deneuve. I mean, you know, both actresses known initially for their beauty, for their, for their style, you know, movie goddesses who, you know, as so many had before and would be after, abandoned by an industry that doesn't like to see its movie goddesses grow old. And that's, that didn't happen with both uh, Deneuve and uh, Lorraine. They've both both went on, to, you know, to continue um, their great careers, um, and both have aged into roles um, befitting uh, a kind of newfound gravitas, and done so quite gracefully. The fine supporting cast of the life ahead also includes the actor Renato Carpentieri as a 
Jewish doctor who introduces the young boy Momo to Madame Rosa after he has been caught stealing from her and after she agrees to take him in. Um, another supporting actor who features quite nicely in the film is Babak Karimi uh, as a Muslim shopkeeper who gives Momo a job and is meant to be something of a father figure to him. But certainly the most important of these secondary characters in the life ahead is Momo himself, played by the young Ibrahim Guy, who was the narrator of the Romain Gary novel, the character, I mean, on which um, this movie is based. And on a couple of occasions in The Life Ahead, we can hear his voice over narration, which I think probably duplicates to similar effect. The first uh, person presence of Momo in that book. Momo, as a character in The Life Ahead, is understandably quite angry at the world. I mean, he, he, he must feel totally abandoned, um, at least until meeting Madame Rosa. And it will take some time for Rosa to work a positive effect upon him. But, of course, she will, and she does, and ultimately helps to turn him away from his nascent career in dealing drugs. But near the end of the movie, when Momo goes to the hospital to see Rosa, her dementia is so great that she no longer recognizes him. But so tender is he with her that the maternal effect that she has had on him begins to function in reverse, and really quite movingly so for the remainder of the film. But I won't spoil any further how things turn out. I think you might have guessed those things if you're in any way familiar with the earlier film or or perhaps you've read uh, the novel on which both are based, but um, the clear direction in which things are going is not too hard to guess. But nevertheless, quite uh, moving to see. So please do watch the movie, The Life Ahead. Um, but I think that brings up one of the criticisms of the movie, um, the ending that I was talking about, that both the book, as I understand it, and certainly the early movie, the, the ending in those um, both um, really had some rather tough and disturbing aspects to them, whereas in the movie The Life Ahead, I think that ending is really quite, and I'm, again, I'm not going to spoil it for you, um, is, is somewhat sanitized, softened somewhat. Um, as is much of the life of Head in relation to the earlier 1977 Madame Rosa, which, by the way, as you may know, won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film in that year. One thing I do like about the newer version of Madame Rosa is that it tends to be a little less heavy-handed. Uh, and yet no less moving, at least in my eyes, though I think many will disagree. Um, that 1977 Madame Rosa has long been unavailable to view on DVD and is nowhere to be found on any of the user pay streaming services, including Netflix. However, the good news is that you can watch Madame Rosa, the 1977 version, for free on YouTube, where someone has uploaded a visually poor but still quite viewable copy of the film. 
and which is how I watched it myself last week. And I think the life ahead bears very interesting comparison with this earlier version of the story. And in the eyes of many fans of the 1977 film, I'm pretty sure the life ahead, as much as I enjoy it myself, comes up short. So let's take a look at the two films in relation to each other right now. Madame Rosa is um, certainly one of the most obvious differences is that Madame Rosa is set in Paris in the rough working class area of Pigalle, which is depicted as far earthier than the equivalent Italian neighborhood in The Life Ahead, which also gives a lesser light, so to speak, though they are still present, to the many outsiders and social outcasts who live a marginal existence alongside Rosa. I think it's interesting that the original title of the book translates as The Life Before Us, as if Roman Gary was surveying both the world of Madame Rosa herself and all around her, giving a kind of equal weight to both equations, whereas in this new movie adaptation, The Life Ahead, that is all less evident. Though both films certainly promote the value of non-traditional families and the love of outsiders or of those who live their lives a little differently. But in the 1977 uh, version, Madame Rosa, all of this is done in a rather much more bold and abounding with much more life kind of way. And certainly it's all much more dramatic as well. But to my eyes, in doing so, it often tends to elude the subtle and in favor of um, a much more heavy-handed kind of effect, which is... Um, not something that the newer film goes in for, and which I admire for all that. Um, that older film, too, was also about 30 minutes longer. So I think it probably had a little more time to flesh out a lot of the important secondary characters who are not quite as evident in The Life Ahead. The new film also downplays the prostitution aspect, which is so central to many of those characters in the earlier film, uh, not least of whom is Madame Rosa herself, and it is barely commented upon in the newer film that Lorenz Rosa was herself once a prostitute, whereas this is an unabashedly important factor to the character as played by Simone Signore in that earlier film. But then, as I said earlier, the newer film generally sanitizes everything. Indeed, Signore, on the whole, played Rosa as a much less saintly, less graceful, and more flawed and rougher, perhaps more believable version of the same character. Though she is, of course, still a tremendous force for good in the lives of all those around her, despite or maybe because of her unapologetic take-it-or-leave-it attitude. Something else that The Life Ahead downplays, at least somewhat, though again still present in the new film, is the continued trauma and psychological effects that Rosa experiences. Well, not so much the experience or those experiences themselves, but that those experiences are directly attributable to the Holocaust. 
In fact, in the 1977 Madame Rosa, when Rosa retreats from the world in her growing dementia and into her safe space, which she calls her Jewish room, she does so while recalling directly the roundup in Paris in 1942. And indeed, in the more recent film, Rosa's Jewishness on the whole is much less central to her character, which conversely she makes frequent reference to in that earlier film, but which is not nearly so evident in the life ahead. And I think that is an unfortunate uh, omission, or not so much an omission, an unfortunate uh, lack of emphasis is, uh, I think, what I'm trying to say. Something that has no equivalent in the earlier film, where Momo is an Arab boy from Algeria, is the presence in the newer version, where Momo is a boy from Senegal, and that is of an imaginary lion, and that Momo in the more recent film, The Life Ahead, is seen to interact in an imaginary way with a lion, which I think is meant to function symbolically, uh, perhaps a little heavy-handedly um, for some, meant to function symbolically um, to represent both a kind of love and protection, which grows stronger as his relationship with Rosa herself develops. But something of even greater significance than than the absence of an imaginary lion that is present in the earlier film, the 1977 Madame Rosa, is the rough dynamic between Arab and Jewish characters that is not at all present in this new film. Almost as if the Arab-Israeli conflict seemed to lie in the background of Madame Rosa somewhat. Whereas, uh, arguably, I guess it's, it's less important today. Nevertheless, uh, regarding that earlier film, it's Israeli director Moshe Mitzrahi was himself immersed in both the world of Arabs and Jews. And perhaps for this reason, Madame Rosa, the film, has often been viewed as a, a, a wishful depiction of reconciliation between the two peoples. But certainly any reason to view um, The Life Ahead is, I think, um, to view it in comparison with that earlier film. I think it's quite instructive in any of number of ways which I've been attempting to delineate here. Certainly the best thing about the life of Head is the central performance of Sophia Loren, which is really quite beautiful in any number of ways. And despite some of my reservations concerning the writing and structure of the film, Sophia Loren herself in her performance as Rosa never strikes a false note. That's the 2020 remake of Madame Rosa entitled The Life Ahead and starring Sophia Loren, which is available to view on Netflix. And also the original 1977 film, Madame Rosa, with Simone Signoret, which is available to view for free on YouTube. Finally, and quite briefly, I'd like to recommend the superb Paul Greengrass-directed movie, 22 July, which can be found on Netflix, too. This is an absorbing, thought-provoking look at the devastating terrorist attacks on that day in Norway in the year 2011, and how the country as a whole responded. And it does this by focusing on the stories of one family and a few individuals involved. Made in 2018, Greengrass is probably better known for such not unrelated movies as United 93, Bloody Sunday, 
Captain Phillips, and some in the Jason Bourne series of spy adventure movies. He often takes a disturbing, very contemporary true story of political violence and brings a sober perspective to it, often through the use of a documentary-like filming style, with handheld cameras, and sometimes a cast or supporting cast of non-professional actors to help convey a strong degree of stripped-down realism, which is little seen in similar treatments of contemporary real-life events. Sometimes the emphasis is on a kind of reconstruction of the principal event itself in all its initial confusion, but more often his works look at the psychological and social after-effects that the violence has produced, not only on particular individuals and families, but on society as a whole. With 22 July, both of those components are present, but the emphasis is definitely upon the latter in this 143-minute film, which devotes only its first 30 minutes to the coordinated attacks that hit both the government district in downtown Oslo on that day, as well as a teen summer camp on a country island several miles outside of the city. After the lone individual behind the attacks is arrested, a right-wing fanatic who believes he's waging war on the country in order to end immigration, the movie shifts to two separate narrative threads. That of the attorney, a quietly decent man who must represent the terrorist in the courtroom, and also that of a promising young student who will himself bravely appear as a witness while going through a painful physical and psychological therapy after barely surviving the island assault. What I think is particularly praiseworthy about 22 July is that it demonstrates in a very palpable and emotionally effective way that a country's response to terrorism is more critical to the health of a functioning democracy and the rule of law that supports that democracy than the attacks meant to undermine it. While doing so, 22 July offers the inspirational hope that by adhering to the rule of law and despite the context of horrendous violence, a sober society's belief in freedom and moral decency can and will prevail against political extremism. I can't recommend this highly enough. That's the movie 22 July, available to view on Netflix. Okay, folks, that's all for now. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Co-St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. I hope you've enjoyed this installment and will join me next time for more movie talk. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library itself at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, 
please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day.